Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Places to go to find cool slippers and even cooler cult film t-shirts. BunnySlippers.com, FoundItemClothing.com. Whether it be zombie slippers or zombie t-shirts, they've got you covered. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast dedicated to giving you... Spooky stories, gothic stories, science fiction, horror, whatever we can get our hands on. We've been doing themed months. We'll see if that works in the next year, but hey, so far, so good. And we've been having experts on, just like Andrew Grace, who will be joining us like last week at the end of this week, or the beginning of next week, to talk about the Bronte sisters. And this week is part two of Jane Eyre. So, yeah, that's chapters, what, 12 through 26, I think? I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our monthly show. You can join us for that, where we talk about the Cthulhu Mythos with experts like Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy. And also join us for sometime during the month. We always have a cool, cool special from... David Heath, whether it be from People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of the Universe, will be there. And you can check him out at davescorneroftheuniverse.com or just Google it. And thank you so much. Remember to rate, review, subscribe wherever you do that. And also check out pgttcm.com. Check out the t-shirts and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all that are good stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Google it. All right, here we go. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 37. The manor house of Ferndean was a building of considerable antiquity, moderate size, and no architectural pretensions, deep buried in a wood. I had heard of it before. Mr. Rochester often spoke of it, and sometimes went there. His father had purchased the estate for the sake of the game-covers. He would have let the house, but could find no tenant, in consequence of its ineligible and insalubrious site. Ferndean then remained uninhabited and unfurnished with the exception of some two or three rooms fitted up for the accommodation of the squire when he went there in the season to shoot. To this house I came, just ere dark, on an evening marked by the characteristics of sad sky, cold gale, and continued small penetrating rain. The last mile I performed on foot, having dismissed the chaise and driver with the double remuneration I had promised. Even when within a very short distance of the manor-house you could see nothing of it, so thick and dark grew the timber of the gloomy wood about it. Iron gates between granite pillars showed me where to enter, and passing through them I found myself at once in the twilight of close-ranked trees. There was a grass-grown track descending the forest aisle between hoar and knotty shafts and underbranched arches. I followed it, expecting soon to reach the dwelling. But it stretched on and on, it would far and farther. No sign of habitation or grounds was visible. I thought I had taken a wrong direction and lost my way. The darkness of natural as well as of sylvan dusk gathered over me. I looked round in search of another road. There was none. All was interwoven stem, columnar trunk, dense summer foliage, no opening anywhere. I proceeded. At last my way opened, the trees thinned a little, 
Presently I beheld a railing, then the house, scarce, by this dim light distinguishable from the trees, so dank and green were its decaying walls. Entering a portal, fastened only by a latch, I stood amidst a space of enclosed ground, from which the wood swept away in a semicircle. There were no flowers, no garden-beds, only a broad gravel-walk girdling a grass-plat, and this set in the heavy frame of the forest. The house presented two pointed gables in its front. The windows were latticed and narrow. The front door was narrow, too, one step led up to it. The whole looked, as the host of the Rochester Arms had said, quite a desolate spot. It was as still as a church on a week-day. The pattering rain on the forest leaves was the only sound audible in its vicinage. "'Can there be life here?' I asked. Yes, life of some kind there was, for I heard a movement, that narrow front door was unclosing, and some shape was about to issue from the grange. It opened slowly. A figure came out into the twilight and stood on the step, a man without a hat. He stretched forth his hand as if to feel whether it rained. Dusk as it was, I had recognised him. It was my master, Edward Fairfax Rochester, and no other. I stayed my step, almost my breath, and stood to watch him, to examine him, myself unseen, and alas, to him invisible. It was a sudden meeting, and one in which rapture was kept well in check by pain. I had no difficulty in restraining my voice from exclamation, my step from hasty advance. His form was of the same strong and stalwart contour as ever. His port was still erect, his hair was still raven-black nor were his features altered or sunk. Not in one year's space, by any sorrow, could his athletic strength be quelled, or his vigorous prime belighted. But in his countenance I saw a change. That looked desperate and brooding. That reminded me of some wronged and fettered wild beast or bird, dangerous to approach in his sullen woe. The caged eagle, whose gold-ringed eyes cruelty has extinguished, might look as looked that sightless Samson. And, reader, do you think I feared him in his blind ferocity? If you do, you little know me. A soft hope blessed with my sorrow that soon I should dare to drop a kiss on that brow of rock, and on those lips so sternly sealed beneath it. But not yet. I would not accost him yet. He descended the one step, and advanced slowly and gropingly towards the grass-plat. Where was his daring stride now? Then he paused, as if he knew not which way to turn. He lifted his hand and opened his eyelids, gazed blank and with a straining effort on the sky, and toward the amphitheatre of trees. One saw that all to him was void darkness. He stretched his right hand. The left arm, the mutilated one, he kept hidden in his bosom. He seemed to wish by touch to gain an idea of what lay around him. He met but vacancy still, for the trees were some yards off from where he stood. He relinquished the endeavour, folded his arms, and stood quiet and mute in the rain, now falling fast on his uncovered head. At this moment John approached him from some quarter. "'Will you take my arm, sir?' he said. There is a heavy shower coming on. Had you not better go in?" "'Let me alone,' was the answer. John withdrew without having observed me. Mr. Rochester now tried to walk about. Vainly. All was too uncertain. He groped his way back to the house, and re-entering it, closed the door. I now drew near and knocked. John's wife opened for me. "'Mary,' I said, "'how are you?' She started as if she had seen a ghost. I calmed her. To her hurried, "'Is it really you, miss, come at this late hour to this lonely place?' I answered by taking her hand, and then I followed her into the kitchen, where John now sat by a good fire. I explained to them in few words that I had heard all which had happened since I left Thornfield, and that I was come to see Mr. Rochester. I asked John to go down to the turnpike house, where I had dismissed the chaise, and bring my trunk, which I had left there and while I removed my bonnet and shawl, I questioned Mary as to whether I could be accommodated at the manor-house for the night, and finding that arrangements to that effect, though difficult, would not be impossible, I informed her I should stay. Just at that moment the parlour-bell rang. "'When you go in,' said I, 
Tell your master that a person wishes to speak to him, but do not give my name." "'I don't think he will see you,' she answered. He refuses everybody." When she returned, I inquired what he had said. "'You are to send in your name and your business,' she replied. She then proceeded to fill a glass with water and place it on a tray together with candles. "'Is that what he rang for?' I asked. "'Yes. He always has candles brought in at dark, though he is blind. Give the tray to me. I will carry it in." I took it from her hand. She pointed me out to the parlour door. The tray shook as I held it. The water spilled from the glass. My heart struck my ribs loud and fast. Mary opened the door for me and shut it behind me. This parlour looked gloomy. A neglected handful of fire burnt low in the grate and leaning over it, with his head supported against the high old-fashioned mantelpiece, appeared the blind tenant of the room. His old dog, Pilot, lay on one side, removed out of the way, and coiled up as if afraid of being inadvertently trodden upon. Pilot pricked up his ears when I came in. Then he jumped up, with a yelp and a whine, and bounded towards me. He almost knocked the tray from my hands. I set it on the table, then patted him, and said softly, "'Lie down.' Mr. Rochester turned mechanically to see what the commotion was, but as he saw nothing, he returned and sighed. "'Give me the water, Mary,' he said. I approached him with the now only half-filled glass. Pilot followed me, still excited. "'What is the matter?' he inquired. "'Down, Pilot,' I again said. He checked the water on its way to his lips, and seemed to listen. He drank and put the glass down. This is you, Mary, is it not?" Mary is in the kitchen, I answered. He put out his hand with a quick gesture, but not seeing where I stood, he did not touch me. Who is this? Who is this? he demanded, trying as it seemed to see with those sightless eyes, unavailing and distressing attempt. Answer me! Speak again! he ordered, imperiously and aloud. Will you have a little more water, sir? I spilt half of what was in the glass," I said. "'Who is it? What is it? Who speaks?' "'Pilot knows me, and John and Mary know I am here. I came only this evening,' I answered. "'Great God! What delusion has come over me! What sweet madness has seized me!' "'No delusion! No madness! Your mind, sir, is too strong for delusion your health too sound for frenzy. And where is the speaker? Is it only a voice? Oh, I cannot see, but I must feel, or my heart will stop and my brain burst. Whatever, whoever you are, be perceptible to the touch, or I cannot live." He groped. I arrested his wandering hand, and prisoned it in both mine. Her very fingers, he cried, her small, slight fingers. If so, there must be more of her." The muscular hand broke from my custody. My arm was seized, my shoulder, neck, waist, I was entwined and gathered to him. "'Is it Jane? What is it? This is her shape, this is her size?' "'And this is her voice,' I added. She is all here, her heart, too. God bless you, sir. I am glad to be so near you again. "'Jane Eyre! Jane Eyre!' was all he said. "'My dear master,' I answered, "'I am Jane Eyre. I have found you out. I am come back to you.' "'In truth, in the flesh, my living Jane?' "'You touch me, sir. You hold me, and fast enough. I am not cold like a corpse, nor vacant like air, am I?' "'My living darling!' These are certainly her limbs, and these her features. But I cannot be so blessed, after all my misery. It is a dream—such dreams as I have had at night, when I have clasped her once more to my heart, as I do now, and kissed her, as thus, and felt that she loved me, and trusted that she would not leave me. Which I never will, sir, from this day. Never will, says the vision. But I always woke and found it an empty mockery, and I was desolate and abandoned, my life dark, lonely, hopeless, my soul athirst and forbidden to drink, my heart famished and never to be fed. 
gentle, soft dream nestling in my arms now, you will fly too as your sisters have all fled before you. But kiss me before you go. Embrace me, Jane. There, sir, and there. I pressed my lips to his once brilliant and now rayless eyes. I swept his hair from his brow and kissed that too. He suddenly seemed to arouse himself. The conviction of the reality of all this seized him. It is you. Is it, Jane? You are come back to me, then? I am. And you do not lie dead in some ditch under some stream? And you are not a pining outcast among strangers? No, sir. I am an independent woman now. Independent? What do you mean, Jane? My uncle in Madeira is dead, and he left me five thousand pounds. Ah! Oh, this is practical! This is real! he cried. I should never dream that. Besides, there is that peculiar voice of hers, so animating and piquant as well as soft. It cheers my withered heart. It puts life into it. What, Janet! Are you an independent woman? A rich woman? If you won't let me live with you, I can build a house of my own, close up to your door, and you may come and sit in my parlour when you want company of an evening. But as you are rich, Jane, you have now, no doubt, friends who will look after you, and not suffer you to devote yourself to a blind lamter like me. I told you I am independent, sir, as well as rich. I am my own mistress. And you will stay with me? Certainly, unless you object. I will be your neighbour, your nurse, your housekeeper. I find you lonely. I will be your companion, to read to you, to walk with you, to sit with you, to wait on you, to be eyes and hands to you. Cease to look so melancholy, my dear master. You shall not be left desolate so long as I live." He replied not. He seemed serious, abstracted. He sighed. He half opened his lips as if to speak. He closed them again. I felt a little embarrassed. Perhaps I had too rashly overleaped conventionalities, and he, like St. John, saw impropriety in my inconsiderateness. I had indeed made my proposal from the idea that he wished and would ask me to be his wife. An expectation, not the less certain because unexpressed, had buoyed me up, that he would claim me at once as his own. But no hint to that effect escaping him, and his countenance becoming more overcast, I suddenly remembered that I might have been all wrong, and was perhaps playing the fool unwittingly and I began gently to withdraw myself from his arms. But he eagerly snatched me closer. "'No! No, Jane, you must not go! No! I have touched you, heard you, felt the comfort of your presence, the sweetness of your consolation. I cannot give up those joys. I have little left in myself. I must have you. The world may laugh, may call me absurd, selfish, but it does not signify. My very soul demands you. It will be satisfied, or it will take deadly vengeance on its frame." "'Well, sir, I will stay with you. I have said so.' "'Yes. But you understand one thing by staying with me, and I understand another. You perhaps could make up your mind to be about my hand and chair, to wait on me as a kind little nurse, for you have an affectionate heart and a generous spirit which prompt you to make sacrifices for those you pity, and that ought to suffice for me, no doubt. I suppose I should now entertain none but fatherly feelings for you. Do you think so? Come, tell me." "'I will think what you like, sir. I am content to be only your nurse, if you think it better." "'But you cannot always be my nurse, Janet. You are young. You must marry one day." "'I don't care about being married." "'You should care, Janet. If I were what I once was, I would try to make you care. But a sightless block." He relapsed again into gloom. I, on the contrary, became more cheerful, and took fresh courage. These last words gave me an insight as to where the difficulty lay, and as it was no difficulty with me, I felt quite relieved from my previous embarrassment. I resumed a livelier vein of conversation. "'It is time some one undertook to rehumanize you,' said I, parting his thick and long uncut locks for I see you are being metamorphosed into a lion, or something of that sort. You have a faux air of Nebuchadnezzar in the fields about you, that is certain. Your hair reminds me of eagle's feathers. Whether your nails are grown in like bird's claws or not, I have not yet noticed." "'On this arm I have neither hand nor nails,' he said, 
withdrawing the mutilated limb from his breast and showing it to me. It is a miss. Last interruption of the show, just a reminder, everyone, that you can help support the show by going to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. Support the show, become a member of our beer cult, our t-shirt cult, or even get your ads on the show for a monthly fee. I've just made it that much easier so everyone else can get the same service that bunny slippers and found item clothing get. Remember to rate, remember to rate, review, subscribe wherever you rate, review, subscribe. We are on Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, we're People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can support the show, keep the lights going, pay the fees that we need to pay so that we can keep this show going every damn day. All right, everyone, back to Jane Eyre. And remember, next week we're going to have some Andrew Grace talking about Jane Eyre. And also, the week after this, uh, we'll be doing Wuthering Heights. And we're going to have Ken Height talking about Wuthering Heights. So, double heights. All right, I hope you're not afraid of heights. Hey, Jane Eyre, right now, and no other ads for the rest of the show, because I love you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. No more stuff. Just dead air Those after feathers. this, I swear. Whether right, your nails go. are grown in like bird's claws or not, I have not yet noticed. On this arm, I have neither hand nor nails, he said, drawing the mutilated limb from his breast and showing it to me. It is a mere stump, a ghastly sight. Don't you think so, Jane? It is a pity to see it, and a pity to see your eyes, and the scar of fire on your forehead. And the worst of it is, one is in danger of loving you too well for all this, and making too much of you. I thought you would be revolted, Jane, when you saw my arm and my cicatrised visage. Did you? Don't tell me so, lest I should say something disparaging to your judgment. Now let me leave you an instant to make a better fire, and have the hearth swept up. Can you tell when there is a good fire?" Yes. With the right eye I see a glow, a ruddy haze. And you see the candles? Very dimly. Each is a luminous cloud. Can you see me? No, my fairy. But I am only too thankful to hear and feel you. When do you take supper? I never take supper. But you shall have some to-night. I am hungry. So are you, I dare say, only you forget." Summoning Mary, I soon had the room in a more cheerful order. I prepared him likewise a comfortable repast. My spirits were excited, and with pleasure and ease I talked to him during supper and for a long time after. There was no harassing restraint, no repressing of glee and vivacity with him. For with him I was perfectly at ease, because I knew I suited him. All I said or did seemed either to console or revive him. Delightful consciousness! It brought to life and light my whole nature. In his presence I thoroughly lived, and he in mine. Blind as he was, smiles played over his face, joy dawned on his forehead, his lineaments softened and warmed. After supper he began to ask me many questions, of where I had been, what I had been doing, how I had found him out. But I gave him only partial replies. It was too late to enter into particulars that night. Besides, I wished to touch no deep thrilling chord, to open no fresh well of emotion in his heart. My sole present aim was to cheer him. Cheered, as I have said, he was, and yet but by fits. If a moment's silence broke the conversation, he would turn restless, touch me, then say, "'Jane, you are altogether a human being, Jane. You are certain of that?' I conscientiously believe so, Mr. Rochester. Yet how on this dark and doleful evening could you so suddenly rise on my lone hearth? I stretched my hand to take a glass of water from a hireling, and it was given me by you. I asked a question, expecting John's wife to answer me, and your voice spoke at my ear. Because I had come in, and Mary stead with the tray. And there is enchantment in the very hour I am now spending with you. Who can tell what a dark, dreary, hopeless life I have dragged on for months past, doing nothing, expecting nothing, merging night and day, feeling but the sensation of cold when I let the fire go out, of hunger when I forgot to eat, and then a ceaseless sorrow, 
and at times a very delirium of desire to behold my Jane again. Yes, for her restoration I long, far more than for that of my lost sight. How can it be that Jane is with me, and says she loves me? Will she not depart as suddenly as she came? To-morrow I fear I shall find her no more." A commonplace, practical reply, out of the train of his own disturbed ideas, was, I was sure, the best and most reassuring for him in his frame of mind. I passed my finger over his eyebrows, and remarked that they were scorched, and that I would apply something which would make them grow as broad and black as ever. Where is the use of doing me any good in any way, beneficent spirit, when at some fatal moment you will again desert me, passing like a shadow, whither and how to me unknown, and for me remaining afterwards undiscoverable? Have you a pocket-comb about you, sir? What for, Jane? Just to comb out this shaggy black mane? I find you rather alarming, when I examine you close at hand. You talk of me being like a fairy, but I am sure you are more like a brownie. Am I hideous, Jane?" Very, sir. You always were, you know. Hm! The wickedness has not been taken out of you, wherever you have sojourned. Yet I have been with good people, far better than you, a hundred times better people, possessed of ideas and views you never entertained in your life, quite more refined and exalted. Who the deuce have you been with? If you twist in that way, you will make me pull the hair out of your head, and then I think you will cease to entertain doubts of my substantiality. Who have you been with, Jane? You shall not get it out of me to-night, sir. You must wait till to-morrow. To leave my tale half told will, you know, be a sort of security that I shall appear at your breakfast-table to finish it. By the by, I must not mind to rise on your hearth with only a glass of water, then. I must bring an egg at the least, to say nothing of fried ham. You mocking changeling! Fairy-born and human-bred! You make me feel as I have not these twelve months. If Saul could have had you for his David, the evil spirit would have been exercised without the aid of the harp. There, sir, you are read up and made decent. Now I'll leave you. I have been travelling these last three days, and I believe I am tired. Good-night. Just one word, Jane. Were there only ladies in the house where you have been?" I laughed and made my escape, still laughing as I ran upstairs. A good idea, I thought with glee. I see I have the means of fretting him out of his melancholy for some time to come. Very early the next morning I heard him up in a stir, wandering from one room to another. As soon as Mary came down, I heard the question, "'Is Miss Eyre here?' Then, "'Which room did you put her into? Was it dry?' Is she up? Go and ask if she wants anything, and when she will come down." I came down as soon as I thought there was a prospect of breakfast. Entering the room very softly, I had a view of him before he discovered my presence. It was mournful, indeed, to witness the subjugation of that vigorous spirit to a corporeal infirmity. He sat in his chair, still, but not at rest, expectant, evidently, the lines of now habitual sadness marking his strong features. His countenance reminded one of a lamp quenched, waiting to be relit. And alas! it was not himself that could now kindle the lustre of animated expression. He was dependent on another for that office. I had meant to be gay and careless, but the powerlessness of the strong man touched my heart to the quick. Still I accosted him with what vivacity I could. "'It is a bright sunny morning, sir,' I said. The rain is over and gone, and there is a tender shining after it. You shall have a walk soon." I had wakened the glow. His features beamed. "'Oh, you are indeed there, my skylark! Come to me. You are not gone, not vanished. I heard one of your kind an hour ago, singing high over the wood. But its song had no music for me, any more than the rising sun had rays. All the melody on earth is concentrated in my Jane's tongue to my ear. I am glad it is not naturally a silent one. All the sunshine I can feel is in her presence." The water stood in my eyes to hear this avowal of his dependence, just as if a royal eagle, chained to a perch, should be forced to entreat a sparrow to become its purveyor. But I would not be lachrymose. I dashed off the salt drops, and busied myself with preparing breakfast. Most of the morning was spent in the open air. I led him out of the wet and wild wood into some cheerful fields. I described to him how brilliantly green they were, 
how the flowers and hedges looked refreshed, how sparklingly blue was the sky. I sought a seat for him in a hidden and lovely spot, a dry stump of a tree. Nor did I refuse to let him, when seated, place me on his knee. Why should I, when both he and I were happier near than apart? Pilate lay beside us. All was quiet. He broke out suddenly while clasping me in his arms. "'Cruel, cruel deserter! Oh, Jane, what did I feel when I discovered you had fled from Thornfield, and when I could nowhere find you, and after examining your apartment ascertained that you had taken no money, nor anything which could serve as an equivalent? A pearl necklace I had given you lay untouched in its little casket. Your trunks were left corded and locked as they had been prepared for the bridal tour. What could my darling do, I asked, left destitute and penniless? And what did she do? Let me hear now." Thus urged, I began the narrative of my experience for the last year. I softened considerably what related to the three days of wandering and starvation, because to have told him all would have been to inflict unnecessary pain. The little I did say lacerated his faithful heart deeper than I wished. I should not have left him thus, he said, without any means of making my way. I should have told him my intention. I should have confided in him. He would never have forced me to be his mistress. Violent as he had seemed in his despair, he in truth loved me far too well and too tenderly to constitute himself my tyrant. He would have given me half his fortune, without demanding so much as a kiss in return, rather than I should have flung myself friendless on the wide world. I had endured, he was certain, more than I had confessed to him. "'Well, whatever my sufferings had been, they were very short,' I answered. And then I proceeded to tell him how I had been received at Morehouse, how I had obtained the office of schoolmistress, etc., the accession of fortune, the discovery of my relations, followed in due order. Of course, St. John Rivers' name came in frequently in the progress of my tale. When I had done, that name was immediately taken up. "'This St. John, then, is your cousin?' "'Yes.' "'You have spoken of him often. Do you like him?' He was a very good man, sir. I could not help liking him." "'A good man? Does that mean a respectable, well-conducted man of fifty? Or what does it mean?' St. John was only twenty-nine, sir." "'Je n'encore, as the French say. Is he a person of low stature, phlegmatic and plain? A person whose goodness consists rather in his guiltlessness of vice than in his prowess and virtue?" "'He is untiringly active. Great and exalted deeds are what he lives to perform." "'But his brain, that is probably rather soft. He means well. But you shrug your shoulders to hear him talk." "'He talks little, sir. What he does say is ever to the point. His brain is first-rate. I should think not impressible, but vigorous." "'Is he an able man, then?' "'Truly able. A thoroughly educated man. St. John is an accomplished and profound scholar. His manners, I think you said, are not to your taste, priggish and parsonic." I never mentioned his manners, but unless I had a very bad taste they must suit it. They are polished, calm, and gentlemanlike. His appearance—I forget what description you gave of his appearance—a sort of raw curate, half strangled with his white neckcloth and stilted up on his thick-soled high-lows, eh? St. John dresses well. He is a handsome man, tall, fair, with blue eyes and a Grecian profile. Aside, damn him, to me. Did you like him, Jane? Yes, Mr. Rochester, I liked him, but you asked me that before. I perceived, of course, the drift of my interlocutor. Jealousy had got hold of him. She stung him, but the sting was salutary. It gave him respite from the gnawing fang of melancholy. I would not, therefore, immediately charm the snake. Perhaps you would not rather sit any longer on my knee, Miss Eyre," was the next somewhat unexpected observation. Why not, Mr. Rochester? The picture you have just drawn is suggestive of rather a too overwhelming contrast. Your words have delineated very prettily a graceful Apollo. He is present to your imagination—tall, fair, blue-eyed, with a Grecian profile. Your eyes dwell on a Vulcan. A real blacksmith, brown, broad-shouldered, and blind and lame into the bargain. I never thought of it before, but you certainly are rather like Vulcan, sir. Well, you can leave me, ma'am. But before you go—and he retained me by a firmer grasp than ever. 
You will be pleased just to answer me a question or two. He paused. What questions, Mr. Rochester? Then followed this cross-examination. St. John made you schoolmistress of Morton before he knew you were his cousin? Yes. You would often see him. He would visit the school sometimes. Daily. He would approve your plans, Jane. I know they would be clever, for you are a talented creature. He approved of them, yes. He would discover many things in you he could not have expected to find. Some of your accomplishments are not ordinary. I don't know about that. You had a little cottage near the school, you say. Did he ever come to see you? Now and then. Of an evening? Once or twice. A pause. How long did you reside with him and his sisters after the cousinship was discovered? Five months. Did Rivers spend much time with the ladies of his family? Yes, the back parlour was both his study and ours. He sat near the window, and we by the table. Did he study much? A good deal. What? Hindostani. And what did you do meantime? I learnt German at first. Did he teach you? He did not understand German. Did he teach you nothing? A little Hindostani. Rivers taught you Hindostani? Yes, sir. And his sisters also? No. Only you? Only me. Did you ask to learn? No. He wished to teach you? Yes. A second pause. Why did he wish it? Of what use could Hindostani be to you? He intended me to go with him to India. Ah! Here I reach the root of the matter. He wanted you to marry him. He asked me to marry him. That is a fiction, an impudent invention to vex me. I beg your pardon. It is a literal truth. He asked me more than once, and was as stiff about urging his point as ever you could be. Miss Eyre, I repeat it, you can leave me. How often am I to say the same thing? Why do you remain pertinaciously perched on my knee when I have given you notice to quit? Because I am comfortable there. No, Jane, you are not comfortable there, because your heart is not with me. It is with this cousin, this St. John. Oh, till this moment I thought my little Jane was all mine. I had a belief she loved me even when she left me. This was an atom of sweet and much bitter. Long as we have been parted, hot tears as I have wept over our separation, I never thought that while I was mourning her, she was loving another. But it is useless grieving. Jane, leave me. Go and marry Rivers. Shake me off, then, sir. Push me away, for I'll not leave you of my own accord. Jane, I ever like your tone of voice. It still renews hope. It sounds so truthful. When I hear it, it carries me back a year. I forget that you have formed a new tie. But I am not a fool. Go. Where must I go, sir? Your own way, with the husband you have chosen. Who is that? You know this St. John Rivers. He is not my husband, nor ever will be. He does not love me. I do not love him. He loves, as he can love, and that is not as you love, a beautiful young lady called Rosamond. He wished to marry me only because he thought I should make a suitable missionary's wife, which she would not have done. He is good and great, but severe. And for me, cold as an iceberg. He is not like you, sir. I am not happy at his side, nor near him, nor with him. He has no indulgence for me, no fondness. He sees nothing attractive in me, not even youth, only a few useful mental points. Then I must leave you, sir, to go to him." I shuddered involuntarily, and clung instinctively closer to my blind but beloved master. He smiled. What, Jane? Is this true? Is such really the state of matters between you and Rivers?" Absolutely, sir. Oh, you need not be jealous. I wanted to tease you a little to make you less sad. I thought anger would be better than grief. But if you wish me to love you, could you but see how much I do love you? You would be proud and content. All my heart is yours, sir. It belongs to you, and with you it would remain were fate to exile the rest of me from your presence for ever. Again, as he kissed me, painful thoughts darkened his aspect. My seared vision, my crippled strength, he murmured regretfully. 
I caressed in order to soothe him. I knew of what he was thinking, and wanted to speak for him, but dared not. As he turned aside his face a minute, I saw a tear slide from under the seared eyelid, and trickle down the manly cheek. My heart swelled. "'I am no better than the old lightning-struck chestnut-tree in Thornfield Orchard,' he remarked ere long. "'And what right would that ruin have to bid a budding woodbine cover its decay with freshness?' "'You are no ruin, sir, no lightning-struck tree. You are green and vigorous. Plants will grow about your roots, whether you ask them to or not, because they take delight in your bountiful shadow, and as they grow they will lean towards you, and wind round you, because your strength offers them so safe a prop." Again he smiled. I gave him comfort. "'You speak of friends, Jane?' he asked. "'Yes, of friends,' I answered rather hesitatingly, for I knew I meant more than friends, but could not tell what other word to employ. He helped me. "'Ah, Jane! But I want a wife.' "'Do you, sir?' "'Yes. Is it news to you?' "'Of course. You said nothing about it before.' "'Is it unwelcome news?' "'That depends on circumstances, sir. On your choice.' "'Which you shall make for me, Jane. I will abide by your decision.' "'Choose then, sir, her who loves you best.' "'I would at least choose her I love best.' Jane, will you marry me?" "'Yes, sir." "'A poor blind man, whom you will have to lead about by the hand?' "'Yes, sir." "'A crippled man, twenty years older than you, whom you will have to wait on?' "'Yes, sir." "'Truly, Jane?' "'Most truly, sir." "'Oh, my darling! God bless you, and reward you!' Mr. Rochester, if ever I did a good deed in my life, if ever I thought a good thought, if ever I prayed a sincere and blameless prayer, if ever I wished a righteous wish, I am rewarded now. To be your wife is for me to be as happy as I can be on earth." "'Because you delight in sacrifice?' "'Sacrifice? What do I sacrifice? Famine for food, expectation for content. To be privileged to put my arms round what I value, to press my lips to what I love, to repose on what I trust, is that to make a sacrifice? If so, then certainly I delight in sacrifice." "'And to bear with my infirmities, Jane, to overlook my deficiencies?' "'Which are none, sir, to me. I love you better now, when I can really be useful to you than I did in your state of proud independence, when you disdained every part but that of the giver and protector. Hitherto I have hated to be helped, to be led. Henceforth I feel I shall hate it no more. I did not like to put my hand into a hireling's, but it is pleasant to feel it circled by Jane's little fingers. I preferred utter loneliness to the constant attendance of servants, but Jane's soft ministry will be a perpetual joy. Jane suits me. Do I suit her?" "'To the finest fibre of my nature, sir." "'The case being so, we have nothing in the world to wait for. We must be married instantly.' He looked and spoke with eagerness. His old impetuosity was rising. "'We must become one flesh without any delay, Jane. There is but the licence to get. Then we marry.' "'Mr. Rochester, I have just discovered the sun is far declined from its meridian, and Pilot has actually gone home to his dinner. Let me look at your watch." "'Fasten it into your girdle, Janet, and keep it henceforward. I have no use for it." "'It is nearly four o'clock in the afternoon, sir. Don't you feel hungry?" "'The third day from this must be our wedding-day, Jane. Never mind fine clothes and jewels now. All that is not worth a fillip." "'The sun has dried up all the raindrops, sir. The breeze is still. It is quite hot. Do you know, Jane, I have your little pearl necklace at this moment fastened round my bronze scrag under my cravat. I have worn it since the day I lost my only treasure, as a memento of her. We will go home through the wood. That will be the shadiest way." He pursued his own thoughts without heeding me. "'Jane, you think me, I dare say, an irreligious dog. But my heart swells with gratitude to the beneficent God of this earth just now. He sees not as man sees, but far clearer, 
judges not as man judges, but far more wisely. I did wrong. I would have sullied my innocent flower, breathed guilt on its purity. The omnipotent snatched it from me. I, in my stiff-necked rebellion, almost cursed the dispensation. Instead of bending to the decree, I defied it. Divine justice pursued its course. Disasters came thick on me. I was forced to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. His chastisements are mighty, and one smote me which has humbled me for ever. You know I was proud of my strength. But what is it now, when I must give it over to foreign guidance as a child does its weakness? Of late, Jane, only, only of late, I began to see and acknowledge the hand of God in my doom. I began to experience remorse, repentance, the wish for reconcilement to my Maker. I began sometimes to pray. Very brief prayers they were, but very sincere. Some days since, nay, I can number them, four, it was last Monday night, a singular mood came over me, one in which grief replaced frenzy, sorrow, sullenness. I had long had the impression that since I could nowhere find you, you must be dead. Late that night, perhaps it might be between eleven and twelve o'clock, ere I retired to my dreary rest, I supplicated God, that if it seemed good to Him, I might soon be taken from this life, and admitted to that world to come, where there was still hope of rejoining Jane. I was in my own room, and sitting by the window, which was open. It soothed me to feel the balmy night air, though I could see no stars, and only by a vague luminous haze knew the presence of a moon. I longed for thee, Janet! Oh, I longed for thee, both with soul and flesh! I asked of God, at once in anguish and humility, if I had not been long enough desolate, afflicted, tormented, and might not soon taste bliss and peace once more. That I merited all I endured, I acknowledged that I could scarcely endure more, I pleaded, and the Alpha and Omega of my heart's wishes broke involuntarily from my lips the words, Jane, Jane, Jane! Did you speak those words aloud? I did, Jane. If any listener had heard me, he would have thought me mad. I pronounced them with such frantic energy. And it was last Monday night, somewhere near midnight. Yes, but the time is of no consequence. What followed is the strange point. You will think me superstitious. Some superstition I have in my blood, and always had. Nevertheless, this is true. True at least it is that I heard what I now relate. As I exclaimed, Jane, Jane, Jane! A voice—I cannot tell whence the voice came, but I know whose voice it was—replied, I am coming. Wait for me. And a moment after— went whispering on the wind the words, Where are you? I'll tell you, if I can, the idea, the picture these words opened to my mind, yet it is difficult to express what I want to express. Ferndean is buried, as you see, in heavy wood, where sound falls dull, and dies unreverberating. Where are you? seemed spoken amongst mountains, for I heard a hill-sent echo repeat the words. Cooler and fresher at the moment the gale seemed to visit my brow, I could have deemed that in some wild lone scene I and Jane were meeting. In spirit, I believe we must have met. You no doubt were at that hour in unconscious sleep, Jane. Perhaps your soul wandered from its cell to comfort mine. For those were your accents. As certain as I live, they were yours. Reader, it was on Monday night, near midnight that I, too, had received the mysterious summons. Those were the very words by which I replied to it. I listened to Mr. Rochester's narrative, but made no disclosure in return. The coincidence struck me as too awful and inexplicable to be communicated or discussed. If I told anything, my tale would be such as must necessarily make a profound impression on the mind of my hearer. And that mind, yet from its sufferings too prone to gloom, needed not the deeper shade of the supernatural. I kept these things then, and pondered them in my heart. "'You cannot now wonder,' continued my master, "'that when you rose upon me so unexpectedly last night, I had difficulty in believing you any other than a mere voice and vision, something that would melt to silence and annihilation, as the midnight whisper and mountain echo had melted before. Now I thank God! I know it to be otherwise. Yes, I thank God!' He put me off his knee, rose, 
and reverently lifting his hat from his brow, and bending his sightless eyes to the earth, he stood in mute devotion. Only the last words of the warship were audible. I thank my Maker, that in the midst of judgment he has remembered mercy. I humbly entreat my Redeemer to give me strength to lead henceforth a purer life than I have done hitherto." Then he stretched his hand out to be led. I took that dear hand, held it a moment to my lips, then let it pass round my shoulder. Being so much lower of stature than he, I served both for his prop and guide. We entered the wood, and wended homeward. End of chapter 37 Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter thirty eight. Conclusion. Reader, I married him. A quiet wedding we had. He and I, the parson and clerk, were alone present. When we got back from church, I went into the kitchen of the manor house, where Mary was cooking the dinner and John cleaning the knives, and I said, Mary, I have been married to Mr. Rochester this morning." The housekeeper and her husband were both of that decent, phlegmatic order of people, to whom one may at any time safely communicate a remarkable piece of news without incurring the danger of having one's ears pierced by some shrill ejaculation, and subsequently stunned by a torrent of wordy wonderment. Mary did look up, and she did stare at me. The ladle with which she was basting a pair of chickens roasting at the fire, did for some three minutes hang suspended in the air, and for the same space of time John's knives also had rest from the polishing process. But Mary, bending again over the roast, said only, "'Have you, miss? Well, for sure!' A short time after she pursued, "'I seed you go out with the master, but I didn't know you were gone to church to be wed,' and she basted away. John, when I turned to him, was grinning from ear to ear. "'I telled Mary how it would be,' he said. "'I knew what, Mr. Edward—John was an old servant, and had known his master when he was the cadet of the house, therefore he often gave him his Christian name—'I knew what Mr. Edward would do, and I was sure he would not wait long neither, and he's done right for aught I know. I wish you joy, miss.' And he politely pulled his forelock. "'Thank you, John. Mr. Rochester told me to give you and Mary this.' I put into his hand a five-pound note. Without waiting to hear more, I left the kitchen. In passing the door of that sanctum some time after, I caught the words, "'She'll happen do better for em, nor only it o' grand ladies.' And again, "'If she bent one of the handsomest, she's known foul and very good-natured, and a hisseen she's fair beautiful, anybody may see that.' I wrote to Morehouse and to Cambridge immediately to say what I had done fully explaining, also, why I had thus acted. Diana and Mary approved the step unreservedly. Diana announced that she would just give me time to get over the honeymoon, and then she would come and see me. "'She had better not wait till then, Jane,' said Mr. Rochester, when I read her letter to him. "'If she does, she will be too late. For our honeymoon will shine our life long. Its beams will only fade over your grave or mine.' How St. John received the news, I don't know. He never answered the letter in which I communicated it. Yet six months after, he wrote to me, without, however, mentioning Mr. Rochester's name or alluding to my marriage. His letter was then calm, and, though very serious, kind. He has maintained a regular, though not frequent, correspondence ever since. He hopes I am happy, and trusts I am not of those who live without God in the world, and only mind earthly things. You have not quite forgotten little Adele, have you, reader? I had not. I soon asked and obtained leave of Mr. Rochester to go and see her at the school where he had placed her. Her frantic joy at beholding me again moved me much. She looked pale and thin. She said she was not happy. I found the rules of the establishment were too strict, its course of study too severe for a child of her age. I took her home with me. I meant to become her governess once more, but I soon found this impracticable. My time and cares were now required by another. My husband needed them all. So I sought out a school conducted on a more indulgent system, and near enough to permit of my visiting her often, and bringing her home sometimes. I took care she should never want for anything that could contribute to her comfort. 
She soon settled in her new abode, became very happy there, and made fair progress in her studies. As she grew up, a sound English education corrected in great measure her French defects, and when she left school, I found in her a pleasing and obliging companion, docile, good-tempered, and well-principled. By her grateful attention to me and mine, she has long since well repaid any little kindness I ever had it in my power to offer her. My tale draws to its close. One word respecting my experience of married life, and one brief glance at the fortunes of those whose names have most frequently recurred in this narrative, and I have done. I have now been married ten years. I know what it is to live entirely for and with what I love best on earth. I hold myself supremely blessed, blessed beyond what language can express, because I am my husband's life as fully as he is mine. No woman was ever nearer to her mate than I am, ever more absolutely bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. I know no weariness of my Edward's society, he knows none of mine, any more than we do of the pulsation of the heart that beats in our separate bosoms. Consequently, we are ever together. To be together is for us to be at once as free as in solitude, as gay as in company. We talk, I believe, all day long. To talk to each other is but a more animated and an audible thinking. All my confidence is bestowed on him, and all his confidence is devoted to me. We are precisely suited in character. Perfect concord is the result. Mr. Rochester continued blind the first two years of our union. Perhaps it was that circumstance that drew us so very near, that knit us so very close, for I was then his vision, as I am still his right hand. Literally, I was, what he often called me, the apple of his eye. He saw nature, he saw books through me, and never did I weary of gazing for his behalf, and of putting into words the effect of field, town, tree, river, cloud, sunbeam, of the landscape before us, of the weather round us, and impressing by sound on his ear what light could no longer stamp on his eye. Never did I weary of reading to him, never did I weary of conducting him where he wished to go, of doing for him what he wished to be done. And there was a pleasure in my services, most full, most exquisite, even though sad, because he claimed these services without painful shame or damping humiliation. He loved me so truly, that he knew no reluctance in profiting by my attendance. He felt I loved him so fondly, that to yield that attendance was to indulge my sweetest wishes. One morning at the end of the two years, as I was writing a letter to his dictation, he came and bent over me, and said, "'Jane, have you a glittering ornament round your neck?' "'I had a gold watch-chain,' I answered. "'Yes.' "'And have you a pale blue dress on?' "'I had.' He informed me, then, that for some time he had fancied the obscurity clouding one eye was becoming less dense, and that now he was sure of it. He and I went up to London. He had the advice of an eminent oculist, and he eventually recovered the sight of that one eye. He cannot now see very distinctly, he cannot read or write much, but he can find his way without being led by the hand. The sky is no longer a blank to him, the earth no longer a void. When his first-born was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes as they once were, large, brilliant, and black. On that occasion, he again, with a full heart, acknowledged that God had tempered judgment with mercy. My Edward and I, then, are happy, and the more so, because those we most love are happy likewise. Diana and Mary Rivers are both married. Alternately, once every year, they come to see us, and we go to see them. Diana's husband is a captain in the navy, a gallant officer and a good man. Mary's is a clergyman, a college friend of her brother's, and from his attainments and principles, worthy of the connection. Both Captain Fitzjames and Mr. Wharton love their wives, and are loved by them. As to St. John Rivers, he left England. He went to India. He entered on the path he had marked for himself he pursues it still. A more resolute, indefatigable pioneer never wrought amidst rocks and dangers. Firm, faithful, and devoted, full of energy and zeal and truth, he labours for his race, he clears their painful way to improvement, he hews down, like a giant, the prejudices of creed and caste that encumber it. He may be stern, 
he may be exacting, he may be ambitious yet, but his is the sternness of the warrior Greatheart, who guards his pilgrim convoy from the onslaught of Apollyon. His is the exaction of the Apostle, who speaks but for Christ, when he says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. His is the ambition of the high master spirit, which aims to fill a place in the first rank of those who are redeemed from the earth, who stand without fault before the throne of God, who share the last mighty victories of the Lamb, who are called, and chosen, and faithful. St. John is unmarried. He never will marry now. Himself has hitherto sufficed to the toil, and the toil draws near its close, his glorious sun hastens to its setting. The last letter I received from him drew from my eyes human tears, and yet filled my heart with divine joy. He anticipated his sure reward, his incorruptible crown. I know that a stranger's hand will write to me next, to say that the good and faithful servant has been called at length into the joy of his Lord. And why weep for this? No fear of death will darken St. John's last hour. His mind will be unclouded, his heart will be undaunted, his hope will be sure his faith steadfast. His own words are a pledge of this. My master, he says, has forewarned me. Daily he announces more distinctly, surely I come quickly, and hourly I more eagerly respond, Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. End of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte